Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Stage Women from our 2018 programme. Anna Karenina and Tigany and the women of Beckett are just some of the roles that Irish actor Lisa Dwan has fashioned as her own in an illustrious theatrical career. As heated debate continues over the position and representation of women on and off the stage and screen, Dwan joins Fiona Samuel for a conversation about towering female literary characters, what they reveal about both the past and current stirred-up times. This session is supported by Culture Island. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you. So this is Lisa Dwan, and I was asking her backstage before we came on whether it would be fair to say that prior to her encounter with the work of Samuel Beckett, she was what you might call a jobbing actress who turned out to be reasonably difficult to place because she was both attractive and smart. Uh, the short answer to that was yes, but fortunately she collided with this consciousness and this language and this, it's more than a worldview, Samuel Beckett, I think it's a soul view mm. um, that took her to places that are so much larger and so much stranger than the standard female roles that actresses are asked to inhabit. Um, so this, this is who we have here, somebody who started out not ordinary, probably briefly trying to be ordinary, perhaps not even briefly, I think she knew she was extraordinary in her small Irish town. She danced her way away from there as a ballet dancer, leaving home at 14 to go to a ballet school in England. And um, dance, how did dance turn into acting, Lisa? Well, um, first of all, it's a privilege to be here and to be on this stage with you um, and uh, a comrade <laughs> in arms in, in, in this weird world of ours. Um, Jesus. Uh, I, I, um, I started dancing at the age of three in Athlone. Um, my mother loved ballet. And, uh, sorry. Um, just, are you all right? Um, my uh, my mum loved ballet, and uh, she sent me to our local um, ballet mistress, Mrs. Sloan, and um, I I adored it. And I was a hyperactive kid. My father um, was an amateur actor, as was all of his family, and so I grew up with a love of the stage. And I knew it was also something between myself and my dad. Um, it was a way of communicating with my father. Um, I never really saw him. He used to do Charlie Chaplin on stage, and I'd, I'd watch from the wings. But it was more the people would say, um, uh, your father on stage. My God, your father on stage. And the father I met um, was quite uh, far advanced in his alcoholism. So uh, my way of uh, meeting somebody that was lovable was through this medium, I think, in many respects. And um, did you get the feeling of the stage then as a magic place? Yeah, absolutely. And still to this day, I will go to the theatre and sit in the audience and my heart will beat a little faster. Um, I always think it's the most extraordinary priv privilege walking in. There's something about the velvet seats and the occasion of it. Mm. Um, it is and always has been almost it's kind of like my church. Um, 
and and to be on the other end of that, to stand on a stage and be blinded by the light and to be suspended in that light and to be able to allow your imagination take you to the most extraordinary place, to be given a forum where in those moments you can rip your skin off and, um, and uh, allow yourself to feel absolutely everything yeah. is um, because so much of the rest of my day I have to put armor on. Yeah, and I'd like um, to talk about that because um, to be able to rip your skin off is, uh, is, is something that the actor fervently desires. And yet so many of the young female roles that uh, we were both asked to inhabit, um, they really didn't want you to rip your skin off. It wasn't about your guts and entrails and mind and soul. It was very much about the physical casing. Uh, can you talk about that experience as a young actress? Well, the great thing is my background um, was dance and uh, a little bit what I touched on in my talk yesterday is um, to be a ballet dancer, you, um, you learn how to inhibit or inhabit these, inhibit, inhabit these metaphysical ideas and um and you go beyond your body and as a child just the training of 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 um playing a rat to a nutcracker to um a snowflake to um all these kind of metaphysical elements to inhabit the wind and and um and uh, infuse uh, you know even a, a gesture of the finger with uh, so much meaning and metaphor is just a gorgeous privilege garden as a child whose imagination is beginning to grow and, um, and, and is so expansive and before the world has started battering her into shape. And um, as, as a young woman in this audience, I'm sure you'll all know how that happened incrementally. The minute you start to imagine or, or, or f start to uh, go beyond your limits, how quickly society will batter you back into place, put manners on you, manners. And, um, and that um, was my privilege garden, was the world of dance. And, you know, home wasn't easy for some of the reasons I mentioned. And this was the place I went to for, for this kind of freedom. And I was a weird kid, you know. I read a lot. I um, I was just hyperactive. I had all this energy. I didn't know it was intelligence. I, I don't even know what intelligence is today, you know. But I I didn't. I you know I I I couldn't understand why my parents would choose Athlone to live. <laughs> um, but I I I wanted a world under uh, the lights. I knew that and. Um, I, I got chosen to dance with Rudolf Nureyev when I was 12, when he came to Ireland. And I didn't even know who he was. It was just an opportunity to go to Dublin. And, um, and from then on, people started to sit up and pay attention to my dance. And two years later, after a ballet exam, a teacher called me back and she said, um, I run a ballet school in England. And uh, would you be interested in coming to England? And uh, I immediately asked my parents and I was somehow allowed go and at 14 I went to ballet school in England and then I got chosen to dance with the London Lewis Ballet Company and then the cartilage went in both my knees. Right. So I returned back to Ireland and sunk into, you know, very frightening depression because my my main mode of expression had been the removed. The means of expression was gone. Yeah. And um and I, I, I 
didn't know what to do with myself. And then someone said, you know, you're a Dwan. You, uh, <laughs> small countries are, are, are useful. You must be able to act. And I went, must I? Yeah, yeah, because your aunt and your dad and your father on stage. Okay, so I auditioned and I got cast as Jacquees in As You Like It. And an wow. agent came and spotted me and sent me to Dublin for three auditions. I got all three and I moved to Dublin. And uh, one of them where I was a, a warrior princess in an American TV series where I did 56 episodes in a fecking leotard and boots rolling around the uh, Wicklow Mountains in minus Some of us degrees. never got cast as a warrior princess. <laughs> You'll find it hard to believe, but it never happened. <laughs> um, and I did, you know, Walt Disney films and everything, but I really tried to get into theatre because despite the fact that I dropped out of school at 14, I was always an avid reader. And I had all these romantic notions of Antigone and Joan of Arc and... Uh, and yet I was staring at my image in a Happy Meal doll. Mm. And um, I, I was told at the time, you see, the thing is, Lisa, you're a TV actress. You can't do theatre. Okay, but I, I could try. No, you can't do theatre. And then I made the mistake of rejecting uh, the sexual advances of... Uh, a particular tyrant who I'm glad to say has been pulled down in the wake of Me Too, though it took uh, 33 years. Um, this is a big part of the stage women's story, by the way. And a uh, big part of all women's story, I think. And, um, and uh, anyway, I got the famous lines, you'll never work in this town again. And I thought it was a joke. I mean, <laughs> who says that? That's like something from Dallas. Uh, and he was right. He had the last laugh. I Not never quite the last laugh because she went to America. I well, I I I I couldn't get an audition in any theatre in Ireland, and so I had to leave the country. I had to leave my country, um, and I went to England, and I I ended up falling into. Uh, a job in PR, um, which has been so useful to me, but that's a whole other hour talking about being Jerry Adams' book publicist and uh, uh, the London Review of Books. And uh, let's I, uh, not go there. No, let's, exactly. Let's jump to Beckett because. But it, it was there when I was sent a script of Not I. Yeah. And all I'd heard about Beckett up until then, I was 12 when I saw Ajo on the television, and I'll never forget seeing this haunted man's face being attacked by the brilliantly performed um, piece of the, the, the violent voice of Sean, Sean Phillips, who was directed by Beckett himself. And uh, I was 12 years old when I walked in and saw this on the television. I didn't know what it was, and I may never have understood it, but I certainly never forgot it. The power of it. And then I was doing this American TV series where a brilliant Beckettian actor called Stephen Brennan played my dad in the series. And he wanted me to do this background work moving and gesturing of the mother and the memories of the mother in um, a Beckett piece called A Piece of Monologue, which was being filmed at the time. And I was, you know, part of that whole fiber of, uh, in the background of, of um, um, them committing at the Gate Theatre all of Beckett's works to film. So I was exposed to the breadth and the scope of Beckett's work then. And I remember one day driving to work, Stephen Brennan told me about Not I, where there's this mouth that floats, a disembodied mouth, eight foot above the stage, so can't be linked to a tall human, and every exit sign is, is taken out. 
as uh, uh, because of the sensory deprivation, everyone in the audience thinks the mouth is moving. So they all experience a group hallucination. And even though I've still to this day never seen a version of Not I myself in the theater, uh, the image I keep in mind is the one that Stephen Brennan painted on my imagination back in 2000 on Bagot Street Bridge in Dublin. Cut to me um, <laughs> being a terrible publicist in, um, in, in, in England, I got sent this script of Not I, and I, I had no representation at the time. My career had completely plummeted uh, due to this tyrant. And uh, I thought it was, and still to this day, I think it was a mistake. I don't know if that script was meant for me, but I ended up going to the audition and being cast. I think it was definitely meant. I think it's very significant that although there was a concerted attempt actually to shut Lisa down, to shut her out, to silence her, she sprang to the attention of the UK in this performance that is that just a speaking mouth in the darkness. I don't know whether anybody's seen this play. I've seen an excerpt of it on YouTube, and even a few minutes of it are profoundly freaky because it brings down to its essence so much of what has been forbidden and denied to women, which is a voice. It is nothing but the mouth, nothing but the voice. And Samuel Beckett said it himself. When he saw it, he went, oh my God, it looks like a vulva. And it does look like a vulva, and it never stops talking. So <laughs> I don't think this can be accidental at all. No, I mean, fate has, um, has had a big uh, part in my life because all my best plans um, end up in rubble. But um, I am extremely fortunate to have met Billy Whitelaw then after my first performance. And then she coached me and taught me and became my mentor. And then Walter Asmus, who worked with Samuel Beckett, came over and, um, and saw my performance in the Royal Court many years later and suggested directing me and Beckett's two other um, uh, plays for women. And um, I put them on as a trilogy that um, uh, sold out the Royal Court, transferred to the West End, sold out the West End, traveled all around the world. Unfortunately, I didn't make it to New Zealand, but I, I came to Australia and, um, and kind of launched me. And then I thought, fuck, man, what now? Um, am, I, am I gonna have to wait until I'm 60 to play uh, Winnie in Happy Days? Um, I was giving out to Edward Beckett about this, and he said, you might take a look at some of the prose pieces. I said, but you don't usually allow them to be staged. Well, have a look. And I did. And I turned Nose Knife, um, which are Beckett's text for nothing, into a uh, uh, one-woman play at the Old Vic. And, um, you know, this has been a very, I didn't start out with this in mind. I had no plan. Um, it just, this was. Did you? have a plan that went awry, or was there no plan? There was no plan. For instance, you know, I remember as a young actress uh, graduating from drama school, I felt that the world was going to be my oyster, and I thought that people were going to come knocking on my door, and they would recognize my talent, and they would offer me all the terrific, strong female roles that I wanted to play. It didn't quite happen that way. But, but did you have any such idea? Were there female oh. archetypes oh, yeah. that I mean, you wanted to I, I, and I, yeah, Thankfully, all of this has started to happen. But I, I wanted to play Antigone. I, you know, yeah. I was in love. I don't know why I kept committing poems to memory. 
you know, um, I wasn't really that interested in, in television or, or boys even that much, you know, but I was, I was obsessed with poetry and language. And any young girl who's in love with language and lights is going to covet the two main roles in the classical canon, which is uh, um, Antigone and, and Joan of Arc. But, uh, you know, I don't know where that idea really sprang from because I went, when I went looking for them, I was really depressed and maybe there's more about that because you see what happened was Beckett if you're depressed what better than to be burned at the stake in public <laughs> well yeah yeah true um beckett uh, introduced me to myself he um you know but i spoke about this yesterday but there really is no greater privilege um to have your body removed as a young woman in that you know when you're tortured because when you are a pretty girl, you have three roles, the bitch, the bimbo, or the psycho. And we're all there to facilitate male fictions. That's what we're there for. And, um, and, and it's all to, you know, uh, be a reflector board to their um, nuance and the, the breadth and scope of their identities. We're not allowed them until we maybe slip through the net when we become older and less threatening, then we can, you know, be characters. But up until that point, we'll fecking toe the line. And uh, I didn't realize until Beckett had introduced me to myself that this was the case. I couldn't see it because this was the world I was brought into. This is what I accepted. Um, it was the unacceptable was acceptable to me then because it was all I knew. So I, think I didn't that's know what how the greatest to greatest writers these. do do. They introduce you to yourself. And so after that, anything second rate just becomes profoundly uninteresting because you know what a big role, a real role, a three dimensional role actually feels like. Yeah, and they go beyond the body. And I didn't realize that until uh, I had an opportunity to travel the world and spend. Um, you know, many, many years in, in total, 13 years, I think, performing, not I. And, um, and to have your body removed where, I mean, there was one incident. I was performing not I down in a cave in Enniskillen. It's one of the deepest caves in, in Europe, uh, Marble Arch Caves. And the audience, 27 of them, it was some bright idea of this artistic director. Um, great idea in, in reality, it was a real pain in the arse to pull off. But uh, the audience would uh, come in, 27 of them, by boat. And they'd find me like fucking Batwoman up in the cliff and I'd just go like the clappers. But spending a whole week down there doing these cycles of performances of Not I, you know, the, I didn't, usually I have to seduce fire marshals around the world to try and get my blackout, to get every exit sign uh, switched off in an auditorium so we can maintain the optical illusion. And by God, did I, I was shameless um, to uh, try and, 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 and make sure the audience gets this opportunity of this fascinating optical illusion of the mouth appearing to osculate or float across the auditorium. So down in the cave, I, I didn't have to re resort to any of those antics. It's a complete blackout. And you spend a long time down there. Something came into my performance. My entire vocal range changed. It was like a voice from Mordor that I didn't even think I could create, that my body could, could make that sound. And when we drop ideas of ourselves, um, the imagination can dissolve those boundaries and you can become something that you never even intended to. 
So my ideas of myself are so limited and are reinforced continually by men that I know and men that I don't know who come up and tell me who I am and what I should be. Every day, I'm, I'm put in line. A little bit, I'm put in line. You know, I'm just a bit much or, you know, are reminded of the constant threat. And I didn't realize the thing that was keeping me in line so much was fear. I didn't realize how scared I was. Yeah. And traveling around the world, performing these one-woman Beckett plays, sometimes in front of an audience of 2,000 people, and it's just me. Um, and I'm, I'm, I forgot, I, I have stage fright. You know, I will end up with a colostomy bag if I stick in this profession. But I, you know, I, I, I am. This, I, I, I just have to remind myself before I go on stage. This is, this is what I do. This is what I have to do. And I, I get up there and I, I, I get through it. But it's never easy. And what I do is, is very hard. This Beckettian work is, is extremely tactile, very liberating, and, and very rewarding. And no other writer I know asks or offers so much. There's always rich pickings. I'm always discovering new things on stage. I'm always finding some gem in the corner to dust off and carry, carry on into the next performance. It's so, I never tire of it. And, um, and what happened was is I forgot to be frightened on a daily basis. I forgot that my role as a female actress in particular is to allow men dominate me both on and off the stage. I forgot. I didn't go out there as some little terrier, you know, or I didn't even know what feminism was. I, I, it's just the fact that I had these shackles removed from me, yeah. these ideas of myself, the politics of the body removed, that I was given this landscape that stretched me. And it was only when I started being offered roles now that I'd had this name and they realized, oh, maybe she can do theater uh, <laughs> um, after all, um, that I had to hop into prisons that were really shocking to me. So it was a big reality shock to then um, be on stage with uh, other men. And, uh, and, and, and I had a very difficult time adjusting to that. Yeah, prisons is a good way of putting it. Prisons, cages, confined spaces, barred things. You're really talking about um, entrapment versus freedom, mm -hmm. aren't you? It's a, it's a very simple thing. And I think all of our complaints about the, the very limited roles that are usually available to women come down to that one concept, essentially, how much space you are allowed to inhabit. Yeah, And now that the world is opening up for you in all sorts of wonderful ways because of this work that you're doing, tell us about some of the other writers uh, that you are now working with as a result of your work with Beckett. Well, I've been very fortunate. Um, I, I befriended Colm Toybean, um, who some of you might know, um, and he came along to see me in Nose Knife. And um, we had coffee afterwards, and I said, I need an Antigone. And my issue is that I've been looking for Antigone. In fact, when I was younger, I got cast in Antigone. And um, 
I got cast in the 1940s version um, by Jean Ennui. And no actress, I discovered this now. I again, I, didn't, I wouldn't have had the confidence to even say this. I thought it was my fault. Um, no actress can make that work. No actress can make that character legitimate. She is a shrill adolescent who, um, who Crayon, God love him, is trying to rationalize and educate. And um, that was uh, a painful realization. And I, I went in search for her and I realized, it, you know, it is written in a way that she is undermined. Then Brecht turns her into a fascist. Seamus Heaney sentimentalizes her. Tom Poland turns her into Bernadette Devlin. Connor Cruz O'Brien suggests that her sister's acquiescence is far more favorable. What the feck is going on here? Then I went back to the original and I find, to my surprise, a very measured, intelligent, uh, economical argument. So economical that actually 20% of all female, um, of all the discourse is, is female. It is already, this famous feminist text is already 80% male dominated. Then why were all the other writers flocking back to further subvert um, the remaining 20% of her? What's going on here? Well, when you're used to having 95% of the time, to only have 80% of it, it's quite a reduction. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. But, uh, you know, these were the two parts left for us in the classical canon. <laughs> and if I was clinging on to something so flimsy, um, and we kind of think that these, um, you know, particularly in the world of theatre, we always go back to the Greeks. Where do you go after Becker? Well, you go back to the Greeks, that these were the archetypes. These were, this was the architecture of our imagination. And, you know, that architecture is alive and well. It's so, alive and well in here. And, um, and when you think about it, these were just hired hands. How you know, Euripides you and Sophocles. So, sorry. No, so I right. said to um, Colin, will you write me an Antigone? And I, I laid out what my problem is. I need to, to, to put flesh on her. And he is so great at his quiet female characters. He decided to write it from his Mania's point of view, which was very smart, and asks us all, who are we if we're not Antigone? And what is it to be a citizen? Um, however, he did send me a draft when I was performing Pinter in Washington, and I was having a hard time playing a 1960s housewife, you know, straddling that tightrope between sexy whore and virtuous wife with an actor who kept screaming, look at me, she has to look at me. <laughs> he ended up getting fired for being so violent towards me, and which wouldn't have happened last year. So things are shifting slightly because of the Me Too. But I was going through this, and um, Colm arrived with the script and said, what do you think, what do you think? And it was fairly misogynistic. And, and I was caught between feeling bullied and frightened and, uh, and feeling like I was surely wrong and, and vulnerable. And I read this text, and here you have this great writer giving up this time for you, and I should be so grateful. And, and it's not that I'm not grateful. I'm really grateful. Um, but I also know that this was deeply misogynistic. So how do I straddle my gratitude with my truth? And, um, and I said to him, I've just one question, Colm. What do you think of Antigone? And he went, oh, I suppose she's like Sinead O'Connor. Now, Sinead O'Connor, in my imagination, was this symbol of insanity. 
this will happen to you if you get ideas of yourself in Ireland. And I heard all the men talk about her. Even my brother used to joke as a child growing up, you're going to be like Sinead O'Connor and I'll be like Joe. I'll write scathing things in the press about you. <laughs> and she was this figure growing up who was destroyed and made to go mad. And when I listen to her lyrics now, I think, God, she was way before her time. You know, the things she was challenging, the things in the church, the ripping up the Pope's picture, you know, um, and no wonder she went mad. And I see so many women who were put under that pressure cooker in Ireland. Um, now McCafferty, another one, you know, she was such a, a staggering, formidable, I hate that word, I can't be, believe I even use that for uh, another woman, but, you know, uh, she was such a, a, a fierce writer. She was an extraordinary journalist. And again, pushed into the, um, the you know, you had such a narrow way of, of being. You had such a, a passage that you had either told the line or you went into the mad camp. And I realized that the word sanity is used against women. So, you know, the hysteria, hysterical. And I realized that all these Greeks, um, all these men that go flocking back, Frank McGuinness, I went to his, um, his uh, Electra, and like she starts, and the whole play is just like, of insanity. How you maintain that? I remember seeing Fiona Shaw doing Medea, coming out just bloody hands. And, you know, there's argument now um, and historical evidence to support it that Medea didn't even kill her children. Jason did it. You know, and if you re reflect that with current kind of filicide rates, that mostly uh, women, if they're going to kill their children, do so in an intimate way, a loving way, using a pillow or, or soft body contact or, or, or drowning. And, um, and uh, the statistics show that men do it in a very violent, bloody way as an extension of a kind of rageful anger. And, um, and so I was presenting all of these issues to Colm. Um, and really quite worried, and I'm very lucky that we had a year at Columbia University together um, where I brought in all the students who are a lot braver than me um, and have less baggage than me. And I'm very hopeful looking at the kind of young students coming up today. Um, and I hope that we can keep moving in this direction and not regress. Um, and, uh, and they all work together with me to talk to Colm about bias. And at one point, one of the male, he was one of the smartest kids in our class, spoke about Antigone's uh, insanity versus Crayon's uh, rational <laughs> argument. And I turned on him, and the whites of my eyes were like, sanity? And Colm was so scared <laughs> on, on William's behalf that he crawled under the table in front of the students and lay on his back like this underneath. I'm like, get up! Um, but we ended up, like, Colm and I spoke every day on the phone for at least an hour. He would send me a draft. I would record it and send it back to him we would scream at each other, each other down the phone. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that word. I am not saying submit. You either take that out or I'm just not gonna say it. He's like, shut up, shut up. <laughs> we would have these roaring rows with one another. And, you know, he rang me yesterday here just to say, I miss you. And, and we love each other deeply. And what has emerged out of this, and. It, it was, you know, testament to Colm to really listen 
You know, he really listened to everybody, every argument, and thank God he didn't just take my side of things. You know, thank God he came with that tension and his desire to um, maintain a state, which is a very deep desire in him. And um, and we 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 have this we created this text or he created it you know with me yapping at his heels, um, this this text called Pale Sister that I'm very proud of and I'm about to kind of enter um, and take out into the world and that'll be my next piece of work as a, um, a way out of Beckett and into something else and I feel I'm contributing to um, the canon. Um, with what I have picked up along the way. But during this time, um, I was struggling on how to deal with Colm, and I turned to Margaret Atwood, and one day she rang me up and she said, Lisa, why are you playing Antigone? And uh, she said, why don't you play Medea? I mean, think about it. You've got that funny accent and everyone hates you. You're perfect. <laughs> And I said, well, why, right to the heart why don't you write it for me? And she said, okay, okay, we'll think about it. So actually now it turns out we're going into um, working on it this January and that's very exciting. Um, very lucky. Mm. Well, that's amazing because that's the question I was going to ask. <laughs> the one she just answered, it really was. Because uh, hearing Lisa talk about the unsatisfactory Antigone that existed prior, prior to Colm Toybin's script, um, which I can really relate to as an actress, you know, going to a role that you expect to be magnificent and finding that actually it's a sliver and also it doesn't feel psychologically truthful. What do you do then? You lasso a brilliant writer to write you a better version, but even then it's not necessarily going to be happier ever after. That was what I was going to ask you, what that process was like, because you can't necessarily guarantee that what that writer's going to bring you is something large enough for you to inhabit truthfully by hook or by crook you got there mm. I mean for me I don't do anything useful but I work in the land of narrative and all we have are our narratives of ourselves yeah. and um, I know that I would have felt less lonely had I had more realistic narratives or things that reflected some of the little crazy ideas I had as a child or a place that I could travel to that welcomed me, you know, blonde hair and all. You know, I, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, I was looking for role models and a way of being and I couldn't find any root and the roots that were there were making me sick. They were making me psychologically ill you know, to constantly, really, the same bitch again? I have no more whores left in me. <laughs> I really don't. I can't play another prostitute for another man. Sorry. You know, and, and it's so I feel painful. the same way about nice mothers, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm now getting soccer Nasty mothers, mom. bring them on. Yeah. Nice mothers, no. Well, soccer mom is my new one, living in the States. Um, so it's, 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 it's my duty. It's all I know. I think about my niece. I think about my other two nieces. I think about all the young girls who are trying to find ideas of themselves. And all I know how to do is push the door open. Because when I was complaining about some of the brutality I, I faced, um, I was talking to my mom post me too, because I didn't speak out in the press about this. Um, I didn't talk about that tyrant and he was brought down by others. I didn't, I didn't know how to. I didn't have the language. For me, it was too big.
And um, I didn't want to be angry. I, I, I spent a lot of time listening last year. I listened to every single argument and tried to figure out a way of being and negotiate my way through this. And I remember talking about it to my mom. She said, well, Lisa, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. And I thought, you know, Mom, I'm beginning to think Rome is the fecking problem. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about the Catholic Church. That's a whole other festival. <laughs> we should do a festival about uh, the Catholic Church. But uh, I think... Um, I think it is the, the remnants of this architecture of narrative. I mean, no woman was really allowed into Greek theatre. So it's not as if we could argue those constructions then. Actually, that's a bit <laughs> limiting. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have a voice. And, um, I, you know, I just, I just want to start contributing to that and, and, and changing that architecture a little bit and expanding it. You know. Yeah, I mean, really, women have been on the public stage for two seconds, if you think about the history of the world. So what we are setting out to do is, is something very new and something that's never been done before. There's one thing. Wow. There's one thing, though, before I want... You know, this isn't about man-bashing at all, because I think female misogyny is one of the saddest, most unfathomable aspects of all of this. And... You know, there was this thing I spoke about yesterday called hashtag waking the feminists, which was an early version of Me Too, where uh, a gang of women all of a sudden um, decided uh, to get upset that we were entirely written out of the centenary celebrations of the Irish state in all the plays in our national theatre's offering. And so many women have been written out of history, but this was our 1916 celebration of the Irish state, and we'd been entirely written out of it. And that went unnoticed by many boards, the, the Art um, Culture Ireland, the, the, the Board of the Arts, whatever it's called, and, um, and even the Abbey Board, until a friend of mine, Belinda McKeown, in New York, sees um, the, the now disgraced uh, former director tweeting about it. Um, and uh, she pointed out, she said, why are there no women? And he wrote back, there wasn't anyone good enough. Them's the breaks. So them's the breaks becomes this inferno that became hashtag waking the feminists. And I met with Belinda, I didn't know her prior to this, to thank her for this, because I knew she was the one who ignited this, uh, this fire. And um, she started crying. And she said, uh, you know, I have written all the women out of my novels to focus on the men. In my plays, if you look at them, there's the nurse, there's the mother, and there's the girlfriend. I, am, I find it so hard to imagine women. I way prefer my instinct is to focus on men. And she says, I find it so hard. I'm, 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 I'm working on a novel now, and I'm really trying not to kill the woman off just to focus on the men. And I think about that myself. I think I, I am programmed to seek male approval. I am programmed to facilitate men and make them feel comfortable on stage, to make their lines work, even when they give you nothing. And I stopped doing that, deliberately made a decision to stop doing that during Anna Karenina, because I was the lead and I kind of had to carry the play, so I had to kind of inhabit it. And it's funny, the fish rots from the head down is an interesting phrase. And I'd been saying this to my female friends over the past year or so. I was like, I know we've got, 
you know, uh, a female running for president, and I know um, uh, hashtag waking the feminists is gaining certain storm and or certain uh, momentum. But do you not think the kickback is pretty bad? Do you think it's getting worse? And we'd whisper this to each other, and it had gotten to the point where it was igniting conversations between strangers on trains, in aeroplanes, at uh, changing rooms, in in shops, and and then Hillary rang ran for president and we got our answer because the language around that campaign worldwide was so shocking you know uh it was a nasty woman she's and not selling her book at this festival by the way but um uh, do read hillary's book it's an eye-opener so I, you know, I started to collect the narratives or the things I had been descri described or I noticed when I'd get a phone call from my producer to talk about my troubling propensity to talk directly to men or, you know, and just I, I started to listen and to catalogue it all a little bit. And then the week that Trump got elected was the week I got thrown across the stage and sent to hospital. I had bruises all around my arm every night during my monologue as the men combined to pick me up even though it was never staged or choreographed, just to show me who was boss and to show me they could lift me up in the air. I would go to take my curtain call and they'd walk out on the stage on my solo curtain call. This, it, was, it, was, it was happening and I would turn to other women and say, are you getting this? Or I would just even look at reviews of women's works you know, uh, think of the Salome by Yale Farber and the savagery and the personal attacks in reviews. About, I, and so I've really, I've woken up. I'm listening to the language. And you know what? Me Too movement, six months old. Harvey Weinstein's not in prison. Either is Roman Polanski. Donald Trump is president. Things are really, really serious. And yesterday, I met a guy who straight away, and he wouldn't have the most shining reputation, I'm not gonna say who, he was like, don't tell me you're one of those me too's, are you? You know, and, and, and I, I'm noticing the, the kickback from it, the pushback, and I'm worried, I'm scared, I'm frightened for my niece. This is the answer to the question, why aren't there more women on stage? Why aren't there more female playwrights? Why aren't there more great roles for women? This is the answer, because it's occupying the public space and it's being a public voice. There's a brilliant it Harvard- It comes with risk and reprisal. There's a brilliant Harvard study uh, you should read about perception and bias, um, about what men perceive or how often they're interrupted in conversation or, or when women dominate conversation. There's a lot of this coming up. And you know, I was really frightened about bias. Can you talk to bias? And I noticed in my classroom, you know, it's not easy. You think you're taking certain steps and they go, still go back to the insanity argument or the shrill, or, and you just look at the vocabulary, just watch the vocabulary, tricky, difficult, feisty, for, you know. Psycho. Yeah, all, but all of that, but even the more subtle ones, when they think, she, oh, you're formidable, really? Yeah. Remember, somebody was challenging me, and I sat next to Bob Geldof, and uh, he said, but you know, you're so feisty, I'm feisty, yeah. Would you call Bob Geldof feisty? <laughs> it's Bob. Feisty, Lord Feisty Geldof. 
Um, and, and so I, I worry about it. And when the journalist rang me, because apparently the dog in the street knew about um, some of my Me Too stories, in, even though I never spoke about them to the press, I said, I can't. And at the time, I said, it's too big. It's, it, it's, it's too big an issue for me. The truth was I was scared. I really was scared. Um, I sound all feisty now, but I, I, I'm fragile. I'm a fragile girl, and I'm alone, and um, you have to battle every day. And, and I have had my career seriously thwarted. You know, I've had um, people ring up and say, how has Lisa Dewan got into the royal court? Do they know she's a joke back home? The only job we'd ever give her is a job in the marketing department. I had the new artistic director of the National Theatre saying, Lisa, you need to recognise your privilege. What about the other young girls from Athlone who'll never get to have breakfast with me? At this point, <laughs> we have 10 minutes left. Uh, we may or may not have two options. Lisa is an excerpt. We'll take a, a question from the audience. We'll take a question from the audience. Hello, Hand. Uh, can you wait for the microphone to come to you because the session's being recorded and we like to hear your question as well as the answer. Thank you. You mentioned earlier that you would play Shakespeare as a young girl. What are your views on the play The Taming of the Shrew and whether that should still be performed um, in this day and age? I think that's a really good question. I think Shakespeare has had a great run at it. You can't say that we haven't all, um, you know, given him his day out. Maybe not all the works are genius. Maybe we don't need to play that particular one again, you know? Maybe we should look for the new Shakespeare. Maybe she's a girl. Do we have another question? Yes, we do at the back there. Lisa, I just want, want to say thank you because I think that what you've done has been really great. What I really want to know is, do you have a safe place? She told me about one backstage in the Aotea Centre. My safe place, if I'm allowed, is on the stage. That's when the lights can dissolve all those ideas and I can take those wounds and I can give them a job. That's such a privilege. That's the real privilege. Not talking to a fucking, sorry, artistic <laughs> director over breakfast and watching his egg on the side of his face. Uh, it, the privilege for me is to take those wounds that have been inflicted and say thank you and give them back um, and give them work. Make those wounds uh, work. And, um, and, and to realize that all my experience, no matter sometimes how harrowing, um, has value. And, um, and thank you, um, because it means a great deal. But what's hard is there are forces that are trying to stop me stepping on that stage. Because what I say is, is threatening. And, um, and I'm very lucky, I've played on some of the greatest stages in the world, and I'm definitely more fortunate than most. Um, I've worked like a dizzying number of jobs in order to be able to maintain that, because there's no money in this. I'm not doing that for money or for prestige, but um, it's, it's a terrible privilege to be able to tell my truth. And if I can find a role, 
that'll accommodate that and uh, allow me express that and that will have value for other people because the gorgeous thing about Beckett, um, more so than any other writer that I have come across, is that he didn't want his biography to be known, really. You know, he spoke and wrote about his personal truths and then removed the traces in order for us to find ours. And in a way, what we do by sharing, it's not that I, I want anyone to go home with my story, but to just not feel so alone in theirs. That was a really great question, thank you. Um, oh, can I just, I, I, I see you, can I ask Sam, are you out there Sam? How much longer do we have? 10 minutes, oh fantastic, thank you. Yes, can we have this question? I'm just wondering, Lisa, whether you think Me Too and all it represents has staying power and how the younger women are reacting, the ones you have in your university, for example, mm. do they understand what it was all about? Yeah, I, look, I think that's a brilliant question. And I, from what I've seen, I really worry. You know, what was it, two months ago, I was, um, driving to the airport, and I don't know why this taxi man just tried to, to tell me, he said, you know, my country, uh, women as young as nine can marry. And I thought of that gorgeous little um, uh, baby um, who was nine years old who died of internal injuries on the night of her wedding to her 40-year-old husband, or the 12-year-old who died from internal injuries three days after her wedding or the creeping back of the veil back into Turkey. And let's not think that this is a problem in the Middle East where it's all backward. We can always point the finger over there because 220,000 children were married in the United States in the last 10 years. Um, I, I saw that language about Hillary. <laughs> and it makes it also permissible and all those young boys are growing up in that environment and he's fucking president so i don't know i don't know what's going to happen putin his influence i befriended the pussy riot girls when i was in washington trying to decide fuck it what am i going to do am i going to talk to the press or not and I go along and I expected to be impressed by their defiance, and I was. But what I didn't expect to see was the permanent trembling that had taken over her entire body. As she recounted stories of being raped with the leg of a chair in prison and the threats on her uh, family, there is a cost. There's a huge personal cost. I am a very, very lucky girl, but I've stuck my head against the parapet and I have been and, and regularly am on a daily basis put in place. Manners is put on me and I'm sensitive and it's hard. And, uh, you know, sometimes I just want to stick my head under the pillow, but I'm going to try for them not to let me uh, or to stop me getting on my stage. And, um, but there's, there's, there's a cost for it, and I think um, I'm worried about the backlash. I hear it. I hear it every day. Everyone's saying it's gone too far. It's only six months old. So who knows? Who knows? It isn't helped by the movement eating each other. Each other. The other thing we have to remember is the 52 women who voted for Trump. 
You know, when are their minds going to open? You know, 52% of white women voted That's for Donald true. Trump. White being, you know, yeah. There's one more and then I'll go in. Hello, um, there's the uh, question down here. Kia ora, Lisa. Um, I'm a high school English and drama teacher, and the gentleman's question about Taming of the Shrew raises a very valid point, I think, for all text choices. And I'm wondering, which, which is preferable? Do we, those teachers, those educators who have a choice of text, not teach the majority of texts which have either uh, unsavory messages or uh, preponderance of male characters or whatever it might be, or do we teach them but we sure ensure that we teach the, the what's it out of it so that we are educating both our boys and our girls uh, about what's flawed in, for example, The Taming of the Shrew and how it's inappropriate nowadays that it bothers me my children listen to Cardi B. Um, and she's a kind of a rap person, young woman singer who slags off other women, bitch this and bitch that, and they just absorb it. So I'm wondering, what do we do? Do we teach the good texts or do we educate against, or do you know what I mean? Well, there's certainly not enough text out there to really, there just aren't the texts for women. They're, they're so flimsy. So, I mean, there's plenty other scope to look at, but they all are troubled in certain ways, you know? Um, I, I'm not big into censorship on any uh, level. Like, you take something like, for example, Nose Knife, okay? The, uh, the Beckett Estate gave me the permission. It wasn't carte blanche. I had to send them recordings every week and the decisions I was making. And I remember one time he said, why did you pose there? Because there's a full stop. And you're running that, yeah, because there's no full stop. You know, and literally, um, I performed it like a musician. And yet... Um, the, the, the keepers of that state, it's almost like a, a, a church of Beckett, um, um, these academics in, in Reading, and um, said, you know, it shouldn't be spoken in a woman's voice. Huh. And, uh, and I was uh, invited to Reading University to give a talk and the biographer, James Nolson, stood up and he went, oh, I'm so sorry that I missed your performance. And this is in front of the students. He waited because I had a private address with him for about an hour and a half beforehand. And uh, he said, um, I was having a hip operation, a total uh, narcissist. And he said, I'm glad to say it has gone very, very well. We're all uh, so enlightened by that. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, and he said, but from everything I've heard, I wouldn't have liked it. And not only was that extraordinarily rude, but what is that communicating as an academic? that you don't have to see work to criticize it, you know, that you can shoot something down like that. And what does it say that all of his colleagues allowed that to happen? It wasn't for me to put him in his place. I mean, he's 82, I'm kind of hoping, you know. <laughs> but, um, you, know, I, I, you know, I suppose, I think rigor and debate is really important. Our class was just like, um, you know, a, a, a big example of that with Antigone. You don't have enough texts with liberating roles for women to draw from, so you're gonna have that with nearly every piece you probably take in from the classical canon. I'd like to briefly answer that one too, because I've got a 15-year-old daughter, so I hear all about what she's studying in school. 
Last year, uh, when they were studying coming-of-age films, her teacher had chosen two American examples that were both about boys. And when she came home and told me that, I said, well, just whale rider, two words for you, take it back to her. So then the teacher instituted whale rider as a film that they would study. This year, I asked her what she's studying. It's a film called Lars and the Real Girl, about a, you know, a socially awkward man who buys a doll on the internet and forms a relationship with it. And I'm going, what the, uh, at my kitchen table, unable to believe this. So I encourage you as a, a conscious teacher and all the teachers in the tent, please do go looking for the work. It's true. You know, there aren't as many of them as there are works featuring men in fully dimensional leadership frankly, bloody interesting type roles, but they, they are out there. Um, so along with some conscious teaching of some of these, uh, you know, flawed um, representations from history that are nonetheless worth looking at because they tell us a lot about where we've come from and where in fact we still are now, uh, do go looking for the works that do it differently. I, I just can't believe the examples that she comes home and tells me about. There's something else while we're liberating these uh, young girls' imaginations, we have to create, as a society, a safe place for them. You know, one in three of us will be in a violent relationship in this room. One in five of us will or has been raped, been raped. And I'm only talking about the women. Less uh, than 4% of men have experienced any sexual violence. You know, 82% of female parliamentarians in 39 different countries reported having been exposed to psychological bullying and abuse with threats on their families and their homes. If our parliamentarians are being threatened, where do we go? You know, if I was a rape victim in Ireland, I don't know if any of you have been following any of the news there about a very public rape between rugby stars. Um, I mean, a good friend of mine, these are men that I love, you know, rang me up and said, Lisa, you don't realize. These guys were at the start of their career. Oh. He was the next Ronan Orgara. We don't know this girl. You know, as men in taxis are telling me about the blood that was uh, drawn from her that night or, or her internal injuries was that result of some biological malfunction of hers or was it for what was sustained during her vicious rape? You know, I, I just don't know where I would go. You look at the rape cases in India, you look at the statistics one in five. Um, you know, we were talking about women and the Me Too movement. I turned around to a female friend of mine and we spoke about the, the French backlash at the American women, you know, and she said, it makes me want to move to France. I said, France, yeah. Country where one in five women are raped. You know, um, so while these girls are developing these ideas of themselves, they have to be able to express these ideas in a safe place. Um, because that's one of the reasons why I feel um, nervous a great deal of the time. Do we have time for one more question, Sam? Yeah, there's a girl there. Good, thank you. Uh, there, there's a hand up down here. Is there, was there someone else? No, here's the hand and here's a hand. Could, who was first? Kia ora, Lisa. Thank you so much. Um, I actually have two questions. I'm sorry. I'm breaking all the fucking rules. She's saying I can. 
Um, one of them is, what is your answer, what is your kind of advice about taking space that wasn't offered in the fucking first place? You know, how can we do more of that? And the other one is, what do you do about this emotional labor and how do you look after yourself in these spaces? Okay, do, do you wanna ask the next question? I'll incorporate it all, yeah? Good idea, yes, yeah. I'd wriggle your way in. <laughs> oh, good solution. Um, I just wanted to ask about your thoughts on the women that put themselves against other women and how that's a problem in this space because I think it comes from a place of fear where other women bring down women but I think it's something that needs to be combated you um, know, as soon as possible. That's a very good question. And I hope this answers both. In terms of how I address it, I'm no spokesperson. I wouldn't recommend anybody follows my life path. You know, it wasn't an easy number. And um, I just hope that I've pushed a certain door open. I hope that um, by virtue of the fact that a girl who drops out of school at 14, who's been living alone during impossible circumstances, manages to do this means that if I can get it, then you can. You know, if, if, if I can uh, unpack, if I can end up as a professor in Princeton and Columbia and NYU and what has happened to me in the last number of years, or stand on stage when I have suffered from extraordinary panic attacks and self-hatred in front of 2,000 people, if I can um, uh, stand up against those kind of internal enemies, um, then I hope that you can derive some sort of strength for whatever you want to do and that it is possible. And I try and make this work as accessible because those, you know, uh, keepers of the empire want to make you feel that uh, this is an impenetrable world that only their uh, intellectual might can enter. And I want to break down those walls. That's all I know how to do. Um, I think for me, at least the answers are in narrative. There's an amazing guy called Brian Stevenson. He's a human rights lawyer. He's part of the Equal Justice Initiative. He's written a book called Mercy, and he's opening up a museum on lynching. And he said, you know, the, the North may have won the war in America. He's talking about uh, the black genocide, let's just call it a, a spade a spade. Um, um, and the South actually won the narrative. And it's the narratives that I want to talk about. Um, I think um, my duty as a performer is to reclaim those. We think that they're set. I mean, someone was trying to tell me something about uh, the Bible. And he said, well, it's in the Bible. And I went, oh, great. Who wrote the Bible? God did. Excellent. Um, so, uh, and, and I suppose in many respects, we think the Greeks, we think of them, they've stood the test of time. We think Shakespeare can't be challenged because of his genius, that we have to celebrate every little fart he did, including, um, and I'm, you know, I'm not dismissing the work. It is poetry that I could never even dream to access. But why aren't we out there nourishing the next female Shakespeare? Why aren't we nurturing those voices? I think uh, that the centuries of messaging that we have experienced, we've internalized male contempt for us. And that's the biggest tragedy, is internalized misogyny. And I think that is one of the things I am personally grappling with. And when I start to become critical of another woman, I need to really challenge myself. Am I doing this because she's challenging the tiny little bit of attention I might have? 
or this tiny little space that might be given to me? Um, or am I celebrating her? Um, and I, I need to think about that a lot. And, uh, and, and be, you know, a real feminist, walk my talk. That needs to be the last word, and what a brilliant last word. Join me. Thank you. Sorry we didn't get through. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.